Welcome to the Fitness and Color Podcast, where we follow and highlight the experiences of people of color in the wellness and fitness industry, telling their stories in their own words. I was at Seoul for hmm, less than a year. Couldn't, couldn't make it. Could not make it in that incredibly oppressive slash racist environment. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of hosting Ashley Mitchell, who is a fitness instructor in Boston. Formerly, she's worked for Orange Theory, SoulCycle, and more recently, Barry's Bootcamp. I first heard of Ashley while I was meeting with Lululemon back in August when we were discussing a sponsorship for our Hood Relay with Pioneers Run Crew. She's an ambassador for Lululemon, and her name came up in conversation. I went and found her on IG and immediately became a fan. Ashley is authentic and raw. Her energy is contagious, and she's just so relatable. And so I reached out cold via DM and asked her to be on the podcast, and thankfully she agreed. So on this episode, we dive in and discuss Ashley's childhood growing up in New Jersey, her journey to becoming a fitness instructor, and her experiences in the fitness industry. We chat about her first experience with inequity and how that led her to discovering her activism. We also tackle the topic of what it means to be Black in America, which is always fun to do because there is never just one answer. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the Fitness and Color podcast. I'm so honored to have you on as a guest. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see you in person and not on the internet. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> so true. Um, so so you're, the, you're the daughter of a professional boxer. You're a competitive athlete. Um, you majored in theater, um, and you are now a fitness professional, um, and also the founder of a nonprofit. Um, yeah. So you do a lot. <laughs> a little bit here and there. <laughs> I love it. So um, the I guess the idea of uh, of this is to is kind of tell to tell your story and, and tell it in your own kind of your own voice, um, and then also hopefully we can use this to like inspire folks who. Um, are trying to find a path um, to to whatever they they love and um, and I know that your story kind of um, has a bit of that because I read somewhere that you quite literally got hit in the head <laughs> before you you know before you figured out um, yeah. that you wanted to be like a full time instructor so so yeah yeah um, you know it's it's interesting that you know the the places life takes us right? Sometimes we don't even know where we want to go or where we need to be or, or, or where our strengths and our talents are best served. And I think that that's, I think that that is 100% sort of my journey, which is that, um, you know, so yes, I did grow up in this super athletic household and that is always going to be my foundation. Um, by the time I was born, I think my father was boxing professionally um, maybe for about five years, some, somewhere along that line. Um, and, and so, you know, my, my family growing up, we certainly, certainly valued education as I think, you know, most families of color did do, yep. right. <laughs> we, you know, um, but we certainly had this entire aspect that we that we couldn't deny, and um, I think that shaped where I thought I was going. I certainly wanted to be a professional athlete. Track was my sport. I ran okay. for nine years. I was an all American in high school, and um, you know, it wasn't until probably my my sophomore junior year when I really started to get into theater 
which was something that I was always interested in as a kid, but because I was in more of an athletic family, theater is kind of nerdy. It's really artsy and creative. And, and even though that is absolutely my truth, um, I don't think <laughs> I, I, ever, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever felt comfortable embodying that in the family that I had and not that I couldn't, um, but it just didn't feel right. So come, come high school, I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to be Marion Jones over here. Like I, what, uh, what'd you run? What, uh, what events did you run? So I ran the 400, the 800, um, the mile, and then like all the relays. Okay. So like, I was a middle distance runner. Okay. Middle distance. Yeah. Relay. Yeah. So that's like the eight, uh, four by 800. Is that a four by 800 distance medley? Um, and our coaches made us run the four by four just to torture us at the end of every track meet. <laughs> See, that was, so I, I'm a, I have a track background, oh. I was 100, 200, 400, nothing oh, above the 400. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, so I was pretty quick, but so when you say middle distance, I'm like more than a lap is too much for me back then. <laughs> well, you know what? It's so funny. I wish I was fast enough to do anything under a lap but i mean you know we all have our strengths exactly yeah so, cool yeah yeah um, so you so you realized at some point that you were not going to be marion jones you were saying i was not going to be marion jones who who you know was my little track idol growing up um yeah. you know i i realized i was good but i wasn't that good i was never going to be an olympian and i think that's kind of like you know, one of the first things is like being honest with yourself about, you know, your true ability level. It might be hurtful, but at some point, right? Like not everyone's going to be famous. Not everyone's going to be a professional athlete. Not everyone's going to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, right? You you get older and you sort of have to start, um, have to start like narrowing that window a little bit. I think it's difficult because people around you, will keep pushing you in the direction that they see you going yeah. and what they see in you. So like you said, it is difficult to kind of find that truth in yourself because not only I'm guessing you came from a, a I mean, you came from a family that had a professional athlete in it. So I'm sure there were pressures from the family, but also from folks who were in school around you, your friends, because they know you and identity as an, uh, they identify you as an athlete. Absolutely. I'm guessing that's, that's part of it. And I think that that's, that was part of what made it so hard, right? Is because all of my teammates, right? Everyone's looking for scholarships. They're going to run in college and, and hopefully beyond. And there was this part of me that's like, I really enjoy this, but I know that this isn't it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know. So I, I sort of knew that, that that wasn't my truth, but what was I going to do about it? So I mm -hmm. went to college and I got more heavily invested in theater over athletics. I ended up going to graduate school for theater. And that sort of brings us to this, I hit my head, <laughs> right, that you talked about. Um, you know, in between then, my father passed away when I was 22 years old. Um, and that was as you can imagine, absolutely devastating, um, unexpected, um, certainly one of the darkest times in my life. And I mm -hmm. felt um, really, really lost, but also, you know, and this is so common. So, you know, may maybe it sounds cliche, but it certainly is one of those moments where you, um, when death makes you want to live, Right. Yeah. When you're yeah. when you're sort of faced with, well, life is so short and so fragile and so precious that um, the only way I'm going to honor this man, honor my upbringing, honor, you know, every part of who I am is by like is by going after it, whatever it is. Right. Like I have to go. Um, gives you something to live for. Yeah. Gives you kind of some purpose. Exactly. Because how else do you, right, pull yourself um, up out of the depths, you know? Um, do, you have, uh, do you have siblings? Like, I'm trying to kind of picture where you were, how, when you were 22, 
Like, where were you in school? Do you have siblings? What would your support system look like during that time? Thank you for asking that. Yeah, so I do have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. Um, Tony was at Georgetown at the time. He was, um, I guess, two years into his undergraduate um, degree. And then for me, I had taken a break from undergrad. So when you so when you talk about how, you know, people sort of want you to go into the areas that they see you in, yep. um, that was that was kind of it for me is as you know, my mom was co-signing on my loans and so basically paying for my education and she had a very distinct idea of like the path I was going to take and I had, you know, I was like I wanted to be an actress. I was going to win an Oscar and I was going to be like, everybody can fuck off. You know, like I know what I'm doing. Um, and so I was like, you know what? The only way I'm going to be able to do what I want to do is if I pay for it myself. Right. Wow. Like you can't, you can't, like, I don't know about anybody else's family, but <laughs> in my family, you can't be asking for money and then like, you know, tell your parents, well, this is what I'm doing with the money that I didn't earn. Right. Yep, um, no. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so I was on a break from school and, um, and getting ready to restart actually when my father passed away. So I was kind of, um, working, I was in a relationship, I was living in South Philly. Um, my life was like just really average, normal, whatever. Right. Um, and then this, um, this tragic event occurred. I ended up going back to school anyway. I struggled through it real hard. Um, especially that first semester. Um, and yeah, um, graduated, went to graduate school and right away. Did you take any time in between? Did you go straight? Yeah. You know, I took time in between. Um, I did some theater internships. I continued working. I was waiting tables like classic, you know, I did, I did a big stint in retail. Um, but I was, I was really working on my craft. I was taking dance classes. I was doing voice lessons. I was just like trying to pick up as much as I could because I knew that if I was going to apply to grad school um, and go somewhere that was worth, you know, another two to four years of school, um, I had to be good, especially because like most of the roles are for white kids, right? Yeah. Like Romeo and Juliet, white kids, uh, anything like Shakespeare, white kids. And so I knew I had to, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time as people of color, right? Like you have to be better than everybody else if you have even a fighting chance to get half as much as they get. Yeah, right? it's true. I mean, half the time, most of the time, we're the only, we're one of a few that actually get to be in these spaces that get to even have these opportunities. So then once you're one of a few, then you have to compete. Not You're not even competing with the white folks. You're competing with the other black people because there's only a few spots. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So when I got into grad school, um, I ended up going to Brown, which is what brought me to New England in the first place from New Jersey. Um, there were only so there were 20, 20 actors in my cohort, mm -hmm. two directors, and three of us were black, mm -hmm. two, two girls and and one guy. And that was it. You know, and most of the other cohorts were pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, just super, super, um, super whitewashed as as are a lot of things, right? These schools and these like programs, it's honestly, they let, uh, I don't know, it's, I wouldn't say, I don't want to generalize, but they let, they like to pepper people of color in. So then it makes the people Absolutely. who are white feel better Absolutely. and feel like they're having a, you know, a full um, experience like uh, with other, uh, you know, people of other races. But in actuality, it's like, I don't know how helpful that is. No. Um, and that's sort of something that I've been talking a lot about recently, specifically in fitness, right? Because that's the industry that I'm in. But, 
you know, now there's this big panic of like, we got to recruit people of color. We got to hire people of color. And I'm like, don't you dare bring people of color into this harmful environment. Like you haven't done the work to fix, you know, the, the place that you're in. Don't pull us into that. Right. That's not change. That's like, I'm like, so where do y'all think? Like, that's no different than how it's always been. Now you're just trying to do it in bigger numbers. It makes no sense. You know, no sense. Yeah. Like that does not remedy the underlying issues. Absolutely. Just bringing more people of color in. Right. Right. Um, it felt certainly, you know, especially at a place like Brown where there's already so much privilege and Rhode Island is, is pretty white when you want to talk about, um, how campus looks and how the theater scene looks. And so I felt so out of place um, coming from like the Jersey Philly area because while there were a lot of activities I participated in where there weren't a lot of people of color, just the area and the general sort of scene had a lot of people of color, right? Like I could walk down the street and see people of color and then I moved to New England and I'm like, yeah, that's the wrap. Yeah, I'm like, where? It's so segregated. Yeah. Although I will say, so a good friend of mine went to Brown um, and I think you touched, I've, I've read you, you touched upon this um, in your, uh, like when you talk about the people who work at these, um, at these studios, the people who do the work, like the people in the cafeteria, they're people of color. They're actually Cape Verdean. There's a lot of Cape Verdean. Yeah, I learned that. Yeah. Um, and so like you, they're interacting with them. And, but if you're a student at this school and the only interaction you have with people of color for the majority is who's serving your food, cleaning your, cleaning your, um, you know, in the campus um i mean it's just not it's just not the it's not the experience that um that will let you then have an open mind about like what people of color can do in this country exactly i think it just continues to enforce whatever biases and stereotypes you already have yeah right um and then you know my for my classmate i mean for context i don't know if it's changed but when i was in the program you know, it's $50,000 a year. That's yeah. that's not a joke. And so many of my classmates, um, which I think perpetuates this, this uh, system of privilege, right? Many of my classmates, their parents were so wealthy, like they were just paying out of pocket, right? Like you're talking about like people with multiple homes in different parts of the country. And, you know, one of my classmates was you know, sort of similar to like what we would think of as royalty back in Turkey. And like, and and then there is like me and the other black kids who were like, cool, this is not right. Like we need student loans. We need jobs. You know, this is not our reality. We're actually struggling. (laughs) We're actually struggling. We're not a fake struggling artist. Yeah. I'm like, I don't have a credit card to just like swipe and, and do whatever and whenever. And, um, so that was very, very eye opening to me because I had never, um, I never had to interact so closely on a daily basis with, um, so much wealth and privilege, but also, um, but so much blindness to everything else outside of their immediate privileged environment. So would you say you grew up middle-class? I would. Yeah. I mean, so it's so funny. Like I would say before, so before moving here, I would have said that I grew up upper middle-class, like teetering middle-class, upper middle-class. Right. Okay. Um, And then when I, when I moved here, I would definitely notch it back down to just like regular middle class. Yeah. It's interesting because you you didn't get that experience until you went to grad school. Which I was 27 years old for contact. Years old. Yeah. yeah. I, um, so I went to prep school. So I grew up in a poor neighborhood, um, lower middle. I don't want to consider middle class. Um, uh, and then I went away to boarding school. I got a scholarship and went away to boarding school and it was massive difference. And so I experienced that type of wealth yeah. at a very early age at, uh, like 14. Um, so yeah, I, I had to deal with it then. And it, it was actually my first experience in like experiencing white spaces and white people mm. because growing up in the inner city, I mean, I had a couple white teachers, <laughs> you know, but that uh, was it. 
that was it yeah and then just then it was like a shock but i think i mean uh it opened my eyes to like what there is out there um and it definitely had uh, an impact on who i am um as a person today but yeah so it's interesting that you had at such a later date later age even though you considered yourself a little um like you know almost upper class right um you know certainly compared to a lot of the people that i grew up with right like when i look back um we we wanted for nothing right and i thought that that i thought that that meant something and you know i not that it doesn't mean anything but it's certainly and i don't know i'm curious how you felt um every time you would go home from boarding school because you're literally straddling two different worlds right yeah yes exactly um I was never, so once I left and went um, to boarding school, I was never black enough when I got home. Mm. I was never white enough. Not that I ever wanted to, you know, be white enough, but I would never identify with the the, the white um, kind of society or the white people um, at, at the, I call them white institutions. Right. Um, so I was then, I, I was, you know, I spoke well, so I, I learned how to speak well. Um, and then, so I was never enough for either for either community not that um i would say my family you know helped me against that but but the folks that i grew up with hanging out on the block with i mean we went totally different totally different directions um and even i just don't know how we don't connect now because it's just there's no experience right that we have that we share beyond like when we were like 12 um so yes i straddling both lines which i think was a benefit to me at some point because it it gave me a platform to be able to kind of like at this point now i can like and we can talk about this later too, as a being the safe black friend, yeah. <laughs> and then use our platform to then like, cause they'll listen to, cause they, they can, they can relate to me a bit. Right. 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 Again. Um, I think that that's like, so I, so, I mean, I could literally sit here and talk to you about just that for the next hour, because there's so much in, in that and in that code switching and like, and just, oh God, I mean, yeah. you're in your lighter skin than I am, but I've definitely always felt, not black enough, not white enough, not, you know what I mean? All of it. Do you mind me asking, are you are both your parents black? No. So my dad, um, and there's still a little bit of ambiguity, but my dad is black and um, I think some like Native American okay. sort of thing. So my my dad's mom's mom, so my great grandmom she kind of looked like a white lady with straight black hair and like family lore goes that like, she didn't even know she was black until she was like eight or nine years old. So there's something going on there. And then my mom was actually born in France um, and came here when she was two. So then on her side, um, there's black, French, Irish, Dutch, and Jamaican. So there's like a lot of stuff. To make up this body, <laughs> there's no, there's no definition to black, um, and we're all just that. learning it. It's true because, I mean, there are black, there are African Americans, black people who don't know their heritage. Yes, and they could be a mix of, you know, they don't know their origins, yeah. um, and then there are black people. I was like compared to like when Nigerian people, when they're like first generation Nigerian, or even myself, I'm first generation Cape Verdean. Our families are from the Cape Verde Islands or from Nigeria um, for Nigerians which is an African country. Mm-hmm. Um, but we grew up black in America. Like we were born in America. We were treated as black in America. We identified as black in America. Um, and so there's no one definition for black people. Um, and finally, you know, cause we're tired. I'm sure you're tired <laughs> of like trying to define, be the, the yeah. definition of black yes. for, for your, for your, for your white friends. Exactly. Cause I'm sure you were put in that, in that position a lot. Always. And you know, and still am to some extent, yeah. right. Which goes back to that safe black person, that safe black friend. Um, but you know, I think that that's, even when I think about my, my friends who, um, I'm thinking of in particular, my friend, David, who is actually the one that gave me the concussion in grad school. Um, David is Ethiopian and I think he came over here when he was around five or something and they, his family, um, started in Texas and then went to DC, but our conversations are always like, he didn't, um, he, until he got older, he never really understood 
um, why people were thinking of him as African-American and mm. he was never thinking of himself as African-American. And they just put us all in this bucket, right? Not realizing how different, <laughs> how different we all are. We're not all just black people, right? Uh, yeah, I can identify 100% with that because I didn't even understand the term African-American until like way longer than I cared to admit. <laughs> and it was mainly because like I, you know, I went to white institutions and, right. um, and also like my, as immigrants, my family as immigrants, they, I mean, Im immigrants, they pit immigrants against black Americans, mm -hmm. African Americans, because it's like, you're only fighting with the people at the bottom. Right. So like, you need to stay on, you need to stay above board, whatever that means so that you can, you know, make it out. Um, because we're all fighting, you know, at the bottom, you know, in the bottom. But so then to to get, have a full understanding, and this country doesn't help help us understand kind of like our origins or um, how black people came to be in this country and the struggles that we go through, which we can have a whole different episode. Right? About, but but I can identify with that. Um, yeah. And so, and yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. It's a whole. <laughs> it's a whole thing, which you know now. It's certainly intimidating because I am realizing at 33 um, how much I don't know about yeah. about Black culture, about African culture, and and about um, you know who who our heroes are, right? Outside of your like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, right? Like so, I'm realizing how whitewashed our education was growing up. But then I'm also realizing just like even outside of that, like how much is hidden and it yep. feels on some level, it feels embarrassing to not know so much. But then the more I talk to people, the more I'm like, I'm not the only one on this boat, right? Like I'm not the only one who's literally like trying to dig through history to figure out like who they are and where they come from and so I feel, um, I feel like I wanted to say that because I know that since things have been blowing up recently, AKA white people want to finally start to acknowledge all the damage that they've done. You know, now there's this big race to like learn about everything, all things black, all these articles, all this, everything. And, and I think that white people forget that many of us are also learning too. Or not even forget, they just don't realize. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and you're saying it for not only white white people, you're saying it for black people too, who are um, who are coming out of out of this cloud of like this is how it is to be successful. You got to follow this path, and it doesn't give you an alternative to think a different way or to even like think or question um, anything that you've learned. And so I um I've been obviously following um, Dr. Um, Ibram Kendi mm -hmm. um, and his writing. So and it was. And he was on CBS uh, morning um, and he said that he was racist for a while. Mm -hmm. And it was like so refreshing to hear not, you know, it's refreshing to hear because like that guilt that comes with like growing up, I would leave, I would go to boarding school. I would come back and I would blame everything that was going on in the black community on black people. Like, why are we poor? Why are we, you know, why, why are we illiterate? Yeah. You know, and it's always like, I'm taught, I'm up. I'm, I, I was I wasn't learning why that was happening. I would just come back and I would blame black people. And so for him for to hear him say like it's it's a temporary thought process. It's kind of what you've learned. You have to unlearn that. Yes. And then you need to be actively anti-racist. So to hear him, who's a scholar and a researcher in this space, um, to, to him, it allows for him to say that it allows me to kind of like you know think about my history of how I thought about things and then unlearn that and then actually give me some empathy to give to people who are still learning. Yes. Um, which I, so I, I, I'm done with the arguing with like trying to go back and forth. It's more of like a educational. I, you know, I agree with you. I'm totally with you on that. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that has definitely been something that I've been considering too, which kind of feels like self-hatred to me. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, from just, I, I can even remember, um, I don't, I don't know if people from New England like use this terminology, but I remember back in the 90s, like this term like chicken head. Like, uh, do, you, do you remember this? Yes, and, of course. You know, the way that we would talk about, you know, 
black women, black men, people who come from underserved neighborhoods, people who are low income, it definitely has, you know, just being a part of then white culture, you also start to get this whole picture of like, you know, who's, who's collecting welfare, who is gaming the system, who like, you know, it's just like, wow. But then when you start to think about, you know, uh, put that into the context of politics, right. And, and things that Richard Nixon did or Ronald Reagan did, or even Bill Clinton, then you start to be like, no, 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 this, this is wrong. There's something that I was never taught here and it's fucked up. Yeah. And you're only talking about in your lifetime. They're, they've been doing it forever. Yeah. And they, yeah. Ever since we, you know, landed here or the people who were brought here. Um, But yeah, so we can continue to go down, I know. Um, <laughs> down that uh, path, um, which wasn't the plan, but uh, it's just, we, we can just relate on it in so many ways. But um, so I want to go back to kind of like when you were in grad school. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Because we're, that's, that's we're. <laughs> and we're going through your kind of career path to, to kind of like where you are. Yeah. Um, so you were, you were one of the, you know, the one of the three people of color in your, in your cohort. Yeah. Um, and you were kind of trying to decide on what to do next. Right. So. Um, You know, for context, also, I started school um, a few weeks after Michael Brown was shot. So 2014, August 2014. I remember that. So there was also this feeling of like, okay, I don't really know a ton about black history. Um, You know, these like, of course, police shootings weren't new. But that was kind of the catalyst for what we've what we've been seeing, right? As far as like Black Lives Matter, or or at least for me, that was the catalyst to like open up my eyes and 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 then it felt like to me that after Mike Brown, it just went on and on and on and on and one after another, and we would be sitting in class and we would hear people protesting out on the street, and me and the other people of color would just have this feeling of like, what are we doing in this room full of white people rolling around on the floor and reciting Shakespeare? Like how in the actual fuck is this important in, in the larger sense of the world? And we kind of always thought, you know, when we get a chance to start playwriting, when we get a chance to start directing, like when we get to produce our own work, right, it's going to be, activist work but then you realize that you know your your faculty wants you to like produce work and learn how to generate your own material but they really don't want you making too much fucking oh my god yeah i mean i I really i really first i got chills as you went through that experience that vivid kind of like storytelling of how you were where you were because i was going through the same thing but just in corporate america wow like they want you to, to speak but they don't want you saying too much wow yep you know that's it that's it it's like it needs to be palatable still yeah right yep. and if it's too loud or it's too black or it's too offensive to white people then it becomes a problem right versus like that's actually not the problem the problem is like why are we having to do this in the first place yeah. right yeah um so I started to really feel I just I started to feel really just like weird, like question like asking myself questions that I had never asked. And you know, going back to my mom and being like, like I was having all kinds of stuff. I'm like, first of all, if we were if we had enough money, why weren't we going to Europe? How come all the white people that I go to class with, they were going to Europe. They were doing this. They were doing that. I'm like, we were going to Disney World. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so it was like this side of it. I was like, how dare you waste vacation on Disney World? You know, like when you could have been opening up our minds the way these white kids were. Wow. And I'm like, you know, I'm so behind because of you. And then there's this whole other side that was like, why didn't you tell me about, about police brutality and and racism that is sort of like this like underlying silent thing? Why didn't you tell me I would experience this 
in grad school with all these white people. You know, like I just felt so angry. And then I was like married to, um, you know, a white boy that, you know, was, he was a lovely person, but, you know, his parents voted for Trump. So there's, there was always also this like battle for me in my own home, in my own marriage to be proving that racism exists. Wow. But That's... then to have my in-laws be like, you know, well, Barack Obama ruined this country. And I'm like, oh my God. Like it was so much going on at once. That's wild. To be a black woman married to a white man that is essentially, their family is voting against you as a person. Literally. That is just. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was a lot at that time. And so I felt this growing dissatisfaction within me because I knew that like I wasn't really in the right place, but I was like, you know what? This program is three years. Um, I'm spending like everything I have to be here. I have left my family. I've like, I've left right. Like working like this, it has to work. This is my dream. And once I'm out of this program, that's when I'm going to fly free. Um, but in the meantime, there was, thank God, there were these little scholarships for the actors to pursue like sort of like extracurricular things. So I applied for a scholarship to get my personal training certification. Okay. And, so that's where it came back. Right. That's where it came back because I was like, you know what, this is, um, this is, these are like my roots. This is what I know. And I feel like this could give me something to hang on to. Um, so I was doing my personal training certification and toward the second semester. So I think we're in February of 2016 at this point. Um, I'm in a movement class and we're theater can be really weird. If you're not like used to the theater scene, it's like, it's very strange. It's everything that you kind of like stereotypically think it to be. So we're like rolling around on the floor in the dark. <laughs> and, and the teacher who, first of all, he was like a sub, but he was a black man, which makes it so disappointing. But so anyway, he's like, throwing things into the space where we're crawling around. So like he's putting like wrestling mats in the way he's putting like yoga blocks in the way and as obstacles. Yeah. Figuratively. Yeah. And literally. <laughs> yes. And I was like, Oh my God. So this teacher throws a yoga block at my friend, David, the only black man in the class. Right. And so David with eyes closed, feels himself get hit with this yoga block, picks up a whole wrestling mat, like think gym class, yeah. whole wrestling mat, and just throws it. And it just happens to hit me in the head and knock me out. Wow. And I tried to continue going to class. I tried to continue doing um, the shows I was doing, you know, whatever, but it was really bad. And it took me out for that semester. So while I'm sitting at home, on my, you know, concussion medication, like basically out of it, drooling the whole thing. I was like, this isn't, this isn't it. This is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not wasting another year. Like I only had one year to go. My mom was so incredibly disappointed. She was like, you are a black woman at Brown University. How dare you even think about dropping out? You know, the whole, yeah. I just felt guilt from, all sides, right? My classmates were like, what are you doing? Like, what are you going to do now? You, you know, you're giving up everything. And I was like, no, doesn't, doesn't feel right. I thought back to my dad. I was like, if I were to die tomorrow, would I stay in this fucking program? Absolutely not. So you know what it's done. Right. And so I left and I never looked back. Wow. So what year was that? That was 2016. I was supposed to graduate. No, that was 2015 because I was supposed to graduate in 2017. No, I'm lying. It was 2016. Yeah, because I would have graduated that very next May. So yeah. this was summer of 2016. I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing it. 
<laughs> wow. So then you left there. So um, left. Did you move back to Jersey? Or no, you, um... we stayed. So I started personal training my classmates from the program. Oh, and wow. that's, I was, that. yeah, I was starting to make a little bit of change. And then I started teaching for Orange Theory up in Dedham. Okay. So I was driving from Pawtucket, Rhode Island up to Dedham, started getting into the group fitness thing. I auditioned for Soul Cycle. So then I started teaching Soul Cycle. I auditioned for Berries. I started teaching Berries. Um, and truly, that's when things started to open up. I think that's where, you know, most people at this point know me from like either soul cycle or berries. That's when I became a fitness instructor, quote unquote. Um, yeah. Got divorced, started a nonprofit. I'm, I'm engaged to someone else, I, you know, like, and, and now you could say I'm an activist. I, you know what I mean? I don't even know. Yeah. I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, but no, you it sounds like you at some it's you didn't just become into you didn't just get into activism recently. Your voice is being amplified a bit more. Yes, I you know now, but it sounds like you were think you had these thoughts, or at least you started confronting these thoughts yes. back in twenty fourteen. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. <laughs> so at what point did you? So you, you? How many years were you doing um personal training before you started? You got into group fitness and. What I guess how do you as, was there no Orange Theory in Providence or close to Pawtucket? Um, yeah, what kind of yeah. just a little bit of detail there? Um, so at that point, no, there wasn't, and I didn't even um, I didn't even seek out Orange Theory. Like I think I had only been personal training for maybe six to eight months by the time um, I I went to Orange Theory literally just to try a group fitness class. And it just so happened that they were auditioning for new trainers. And I thought, why not? I can, I can do that. Right. Like I'm an actor. I've been on a microphone. I'm also athletic. This is like the perfect job. It takes all of my performing skills with all of my athletic skills and puts them into one place. Um, and and the reason, you know, the reason why I ended up leaving Orange Theory was one, because I wanted to pursue SoulCycle. It was certainly sexier, cooler, more expensive, more like, you know, it was like dripping. Um, and I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be one of those instructors who, you know, you hear that they make six figures and like all the things. Um, so once you <laughs> fell into orange there, you fell into that kind of like – yeah experience in that so that's a whole different world whole different. Um, that you know if you don't if you don't go to these classes then you're not a part of right. um but i want to touch upon like when you first got into your first couple classes yeah. if because i know what happened to me like how freeing it must have felt to be able to put what you put your whole self into kind of like being in the moment and 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 con commanding that room yeah um i wonder yeah could you think back to like that experience or if, 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 isn't, if, isn't, if it isn't, if it even is an experience that you had, sorry about that. No, no, no. I, I didn't feel that, um, for a while in the beginning because, um, have you done orange theory? Have you ever done that method? I've, uh, I've done, I've, I've done berries. Okay. No, okay. So orange theory is like, it's very, very similar to berries in that, right. There are several things happening at one time, right. You're running, you're weightlifting, Right. So yep. it looks very similar, which I think is why it was easy for me to transition to berries. Yep. Um, but Orange Theory, their their workouts are created by corporate in Florida and wow. everyone in the country does the same workout every every day. Um, and so I I didn't really feel I didn't really feel free because. There were so many, there were so many like boxes at Orange Theory. I couldn't be creative. I couldn't choose my own playlist. It was so time oriented that I remember I was like, you know, getting sort of yelled at in training because I wasn't keeping the time right. And I just wanted to, I did want to fly free. And there was this person, I don't even like this girl. She doesn't <laughs> like me either. Um, <laughs> we do not like each other. Um, 
you know, there was this like person who was kind of like trying to put me in this box. And I'm like, I'm like, I understand that there's something specific here that I have to learn. But at the same time, I was like, yo, this is my wheelhouse. Like I'm better than everybody else here because I already have all of the training for all of this shit, (laughs) you know? And like, I'm like, let me just be and let me figure it out. Right. I was the only black girl at the studio teaching, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I didn't even feel that freedom that you're talking about, honestly, until I got to soul cycle, which was, I don't know, maybe a year or a year and a half after orange theory. Um, and then that's when it was like training was over you know, the first time they like put me on a bike in my own room without anybody telling me what to do. That was, mm-hmm. that was the moment where it blew open for me. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Cause I could always go back to, cause I'm a, uh, a studio. So I first was a Nike pacer and then a studio ah, running coach, okay. treadmill studio. And it just like being in your moment where like, you're not, especially nowadays when you have like, there's so much that can distract you. Like I don't have a phone in front of me. Yeah. I don't have another thought. My only thought is like, how do I, you know, com- complete this workout? How do I um, instruct this workout and whatever the music is and whatever, like that was all my choosing. So it just, every time I get into a room or anytime I get into a pacing situation, it's just like, it's, I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and I actually miss that now that, that the pandemic is, is closed studios. Um, I, I, I miss it. So, but, but yeah, yeah. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on yeah. that. Um, it's, it's a special thing. Right. Like it's something that it's something that if you haven't if you haven't taught, it's hard to describe what that feeling, what that kind of leadership feels like um, and that kind of like freedom in, in your body. It's so different. Yeah. So, different. so then how soon into I guess how soon into personal training and, and group fitness did you get before you were like, this is going to be my career? I think I like knew, even though I didn't love Orange Theory, I knew that I was in the right career, just like not in the right place to thrive. You know what I mean? But it it definitely felt um, I, I had I had no sense of how I would get to write the the type of money that I wanted to be making or the, or to have the kind of like Instagram following that everybody was telling me I needed to have, right? But I just knew that it felt right, and I think that that's. Yeah. That is the thing. Ever since I chose to leave grad school, every decision I make has been off of gut instinct. Does this feel Mm -hmm. right? Does this not feel right? That's literally it. And, and I, I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't get much simpler than that. If it doesn't feel right, I'm not doing it. Right. And every time I try to talk myself into Oh, just, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's always disastrous. So I've learned that if I don't vibe with someone, if I don't vibe with the studio, it doesn't even matter what it is. I'm not doing it. Right. Because like, it's like my body, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it is telling me, um, everything that I need to know. And all I have to do is listen to that voice. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. So then you were at SoulCycle for how I was long? at Soul for hmm, less than a year. Couldn't couldn't oh, make wow. it. Could not make it in that incredibly oppressive slash racist environment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dissect that for us. Break that <laughs> down for me. Um all right. So <sighs> like, all right, I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. There were, um, I mean, soul cycle is pretty white just in general. Right. But then when you start looking into, um, all the ways that it's exclusionary, um, it starts to really feel like, wait a minute, am I being tokenized? Right. Am I like one of these diversity numbers? Because Mm -hmm. these classes, you know, are anywhere between, 27 and $40 plus it's $3 to rent shoes. Plus it's $3 to buy a bottle of water. Plus, you know, all of the clothing is like 
$100, $200, whatever, right? It's like branded Lulu and Nike merch and stuff like that. And I'm just like, the the cost of entry is so high. And then they're in right neighborhoods that can support the cost of entry. So then the clientele are mostly people who don't look like me at all. So you start to look around and be like, okay, this feels really strange because I'm getting on this bike 17 times a week to perform for white women. And then, and then the way you're treated outside of that, which is like said white women want to then touch your hair, touch your skin, touch your muscles, comment on your body. And then they want to know, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up and, oh, you went to Brown. That's fantastic. And then you start like seeing all of this, like, right. It's almost like you're gaslighting yourself. Cause you're like, this is no one's calling me the N word, but everything that I'm experiencing is very uncomfortable. And coupled with being one of the only black people here, it doesn't wow. feel right. And then having um, disconnect between uh, the way corporate would reprimand me for um, being aggressive when, you know, the white girls wouldn't get reprimanded in that way. They would curse and yell and scream at people. And I remember one time I said, like on the microphone, I was like, let's fucking go, right? And I got a phone call that was like, you cannot say that. You cannot be aggressive. You are scaring people, right? You were turning people away. Like, and and then like one, one other time, um, I was subbing for this girl, um, Vic, who, you know, she's in New York. She ended up quitting. All the black women left Boston Soul Cycle. So that tells you everything you need to know. Um, wow. But I was subbing for Vic one day and it was such an amazing class. And I was like, you know what, Vic, I'm going to have to just break your legs and like take all your classes. Like you're, you're not going to teach anymore. And a white manager heard me say that and called corporate to say that I was inciting violence against another instructor and threatening to physically harm my coworker. And I was just like, all right, you know what? Like it's just, it, it, there were just so many instances that were, like that coupled with the way that clients would behave that it was it it just perpetuated a lot of self-hatred a lot of um questioning and and certainly upheld white supremacy so i had i had to get out of there didn't make it very long <laughs> yeah wow yeah. wow yeah. okay i mean that that's uh yeah so then the people who, so I kind of want to touch a point upon the point of like how these, some of these studios run. So all the clientele are white. Only percentage of the talent, I would call talent, the people who are, you know, like you, yeah. instructors are yeah. people of color. But then the people cleaning the studio, the people at the front desk, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Those are like, the people of color. That's the thing. Yeah. Security yeah. guards, people at the door, right? Um, and I always found that those are the people I become friends right? with. <laughs> those are my people. It's, like, it's like, how yeah. do you, how do you not know their names? Right. Like, or how do you not know whether or not they have kids where they live? Like in the same way that you would any other person in the studio, it's like, they're just these invisible, yeah. like they're just there to like, you know, wipe your fucking sweat from your forehead kind of thing. Right. And it, and it just like, <laughs> it just doesn't fly. It just doesn't fly. It's the part about boutique fitness that I'm really hoping to start to shift, to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, no, no, I, I relate in, in different ways. Um, not in my studio. My studio is awesome. Um, everyone cleaned their own. Um, well, you know, we clean the treadmills, but, um, but I relate in the sense that like when I was in corporate and I would go to clients like offices or buildings, I always knew the people serving food. I always knew the security guard. And then sometimes when I got on the train to go home, I'm walking off the train. The, the cleaning guy is the, is walking down the street because we live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I can relate. But um, okay. So then w w when you left or you jumped from SoulCycle and I you went, went to Barry's. Barry's. 
Um, tell me about that transition. I love berries. I've only been a yeah. couple of times. I know one of the co-owners in Boston. Yeah. So um, respect to berries. I enjoyed cool, it. Cool, cool. Um, the, the few times yeah. I go. Um, you know, I sort of, um, I had, I went into Barry's training just after I came out of soul cycle training. So like that year that I was, or that less than a year that I was with soul cycle, I was also teaching Barry's pretty much the same time. Okay. And then, so when I decided to quit soul, um, a few months later is when I went full time at Barry's. Um, and you know, to be honest, Barry's has a lot of the same problems that other studios have. And I felt a lot of the same things. And, you know, there's a lot of client crossover. I was the only um, black person on a squad of 20 trainers. Do you know what I mean? Like I, and I talked to, right. My bosses like a couple times over the years about, you know, like, why is this, this, and why don't we do anything for black history month yet? We do you know, a whole month long pride celebration with merchandise and special things like, and it was always this, this answer of like, well, you know, find me some talented black people and I'll hire them. Like they're put, they're putting the, the yeah, onus on you, like right? putting like, the onus on the black at, person. Right. I'm colorblind. If they were here, they would have a oh, job. Wow. And so it, you know, the, the, the thing that you, that you said was just like, I guess I didn't just become an activist now, right? It's it's only now that I'm being amplified, which is amazing, but also pisses me off, right? Because all we got to take it when it comes, yeah. We got to take it when it comes. Because people are now scared, right? They don't want to be canceled. They don't want to. They don't want it to affect their purse strings, right? So it's like, oh my god, we're so sorry. We should have believed you. We should have this. We should have that. And I'm like, you know, uh, are you fucking blind? Right. Racism didn't just begin. Didn't begin with COVID. It didn't begin with George Floyd. Right. Like, don't come to me now. Like, let me let me see some action. Let me see some change. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess staying on this topic, um, I, I follow you on social and um, I love everything <laughs> you post. Um, <laughs> And, Thank you. Um, and I mean, you, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it looks, well, the feeling that I have is like you use kind of shame as a social yeah. justice tool. So you like throw it in front and like throw it in people's faces. Um, and you're like, you're, you know, unapologetic about it. Um, so I guess, have you thought of kind of like the risk of pushing people away or do we risk that people, white people not listening to us when we, you know, cause I, I mean, I do it too, <laughs> but you know, I have this thought, like how much can we throw, how much can we throw in their face? How much can we scream and yell about it in a way that's kind of like using shame yeah. as a tool before it's like, they stop right. listening. I, yeah. I definitely think about that all the time. And certainly people do unfollow and people, I'm sure, you know, people have put me on mute and that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know, people are literally dying in the street. Do you know what I mean? And like, if I have a voice, if I have a platform and, and plus, you know, like through, through my nonprofit, I work with kids. I work with black and brown children. Like what kind of a person, an educator, uh, an advocate, an ally would I be if I didn't always have them in mind and their future and what they're going to be experiencing when they're our age? Right. And so yeah. a little bit of wow. shame never hurt anybody. They're fine. Right. Like I'm not saying I hate white people. That's not true. I mean, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm a mixed race individual. I hate um, the way that we treat people in this country sometimes. And I think that, I think that this, the shame isn't like, I think the shame is more of like a, how could you see this and not do anything? And like, if you, you can say that you hadn't seen it before, or maybe you turned a blind eye or whatever the case may be, but now that you've really seen it, how could you look away? Right. And if you're someone who would rather look away, then I don't want you to follow me anyway. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. With you, yeah. No. We don't have all the answers. 
Um, but I'm, I'm there with you. It's very well said. Um, and you also recently said that a thought crossed your mind that when or should you stop saying as a black yeah. woman, as a person of color, that's, does that, you know, that the, the thought of stopping saying that, stopping, uh, stop uh, introducing yourself that way crossed your mind. But then like right away you were like, yeah. Nah. So tell me about that. Yeah, talk about because that. I had that thought that you just mentioned, which is like, are people going to start tuning me out because, because it's like, you know, everything is, everything is about being black. Right. And, and I, the reason why I immediately, you know, was like, that's crazy, which is like, you can't, you can't be colorblind, right? As much as like white people love to say that, you have to see my color and you have to, you have to at least try to do the work to understand what comes with being this color in this country. And how, like, even if I didn't want to lead with that, it leads with that for me because this is the body that I'm in. And so, right. and I was, I, I just like thought like, would I really sell myself out for popularity? Like, would I really not speak my truth just so like people would follow me or whatever? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't do this for Instagram. So why would I change who I am for Instagram? Right. That doesn't make any sense. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I that came it. from. I love it. So um, talk to me about the Courage Campaign, um, a company that leverages movement, intention setting, and guided introspection to, re to the redefine people's relationship with fear. Talk about kind of like how that came about, what you do for the Courage Campaign. Is it what's related to, is that how you work with, with, yes, uh, with it is. in Boston? Um, so my partner and I, um, you know, we, before we were together, we were just sort of talking about life and, and talking about adversity and through that conversation about like me in particular, how I'd moved through adversity specifically with my father's passing and, and just like other events in my life. Um, you know, I always came back to this idea of movement, right? My athletic background, that is something that has always made me feel powerful. That has always been something that's within my control. Um, yeah. It's obviously health conscious, right? Like I'm trying to like live a long and, and healthy life, right? There's all these benefits to physical movement. But then also um, the other part of me that, you know, no one really gets to see because my job is so like out there and loud um, is that I'm really an introvert and I'm really introspective and um, mm. I write a lot. Like I, if, if I'm not teaching or doing something on Instagram, whatever, you can probably bet that I'm like very quiet. I'm probably sitting in a corner on the couch, reading something, writing something, creating something. Um, and so the courage campaign came about, trying to combine that soft part with the hard part to really drive more empowerment. So you have something that can be private to you, right? The, the writing part. And then you have something that is kind of like your shield to the rest of the world, right? That athletic part, that, that loud, powerful, um, sort of like superwoman, wonder woman part um, and that both can be a sense of protection and a sense of security and a, and a way to find yourself and a way to go deeper. Um, and it's also practically in schools, right? It makes sense because kids don't get, <laughs> they don't get like, especially in New England where gym isn't like a mandate the way it was in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, kids don't get a lot of movement every day. Kids don't get to to write and do really creative things. They don't, no one's asking them what they're grateful for or what they would change about this country or how do they feel in their bodies or just like anything. No one's asking them to contemplate who they are. And yet we have all this research around social emotional learning and, and how those soft skills in a lot of cases are sometimes more important 
than the rote sort of, I don't know, whatever, whatever you learn in school that makes no sense. Um, we have to learn how to be good people. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's my goal with the Courage Campaign is to revolutionize how we grow and how we see ourselves and how that um, relates to the people around us and our environment. So I aim to do that with anyone who will pay me to do it, but we mostly work with students and then some sort of like some corporate workshops, some companies who, who want to provide that for their employees too. That's yeah, awesome. that was a lot. I just said a lot. That's, that's, I don't even remember no, what I said. No, that was, was awesome. It was though. so truthful. <laughs> I don't even, I couldn't even repeat it. <laughs> it was lovely. Right, I loved so. it. That was great. Um, that's great. Cause I, I mean, we had an episode um, where we talked about, it was a, uh, the Boston Marathon and we had a runner who used to be a teacher and he was, and we were talking about like, is running accessible to communities of color? And he said, teaching in, Bo- in Boston public schools, the kids who ran track would use the hallways as practice because it was not accessible. There wasn't a track that was accessible to them yeah. all the time. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that, especially, I mean, I didn't have the experience because I was privileged enough to go to a, yeah. a boarding school. I did, I did get a scholarship. <laughs> I have to say that because I can afford it. But like I did, I had the, the opportunity to go. And um, so I just, it's just another world that I don't even know of. I can't imagine I have to run track. How would I, I couldn't. Right, so right. yeah, I, I understand where you're. And, you're and that is sometimes like something that, you know, when we go like all the way back to sort of beginning a conversation of how no two black people are alike. Right. It's like, even within, within this body, sometimes it's hard to say, right? Like I may be black, but there's still a certain level of privilege that I have, like me, Ashley. And so that's also part of why I feel the need to speak up and speak out and do what I do because I am privileged enough to be in this boutique fitness space and to be a Lululemon ambassador and to have the things that I have because I'm a safe black person to a lot of a lot of white people who have come to know me and trust me and continue to amplify me. So I can't deny the, the sort of um, dichotomy that is being black, but also having privilege. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's our duty to, to help kind of tell the stories of the people who are unheard use our privilege as me, myself, like a, you know, light skin, educated black man who can then, you know, have exp- like I've had the white I, I've 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 been in white spaces long enough to know how to kind of like have them listen to what I'm talking about. So it's our duty to to tell the stories and, and to kind of like bring awareness to you know the people that are less totally. privileged. So thank you, thank no, you for everything you do. Thank you, thank you. Um, I think oh we covered a lot. We covered so, um, much. so much. What uh, what is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um. Or, uh, yeah, is there anything else you um, want to talk about? God, I, I have to say no, because if we'll be on here all day, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I could, I could keep talking, but, <laughs> but I feel like we're at a palatable stopping place. Um, yeah. you know, maybe we'll just do it again sometime and dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. I love it. Um, tell us, tell us where we can find you, um, on social media. You can media. find me at, Ashley Mitch Fit. So it's A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-I-T-C-H-F-I-T. I I almost forgot how to spell my own name. Um, That's why I paused. And um, (laughs) you can find the Courage Campaign's Instagram at the.courage.campaign and www.thecouragecampaign.com. That's simple. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, Ashley, for have, uh, for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and uh, love. Uh, anytime I get to spend with you, it's thank always you, a pleasure. Thank you, so thank, thank you, thank you, everyone. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a quick review. This helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. That wraps up today's show. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode.